0: All uh, right, thank you to the band and uh, singers tonight. Really grateful for y'all. Thank y'all again for being here on a Wednesday night. I know museum district's not the, most, the, not the easiest place to get to for many of y'all, um, especially if you live outside of the great wall known as 610. So I'm really grateful uh, that y'all uh, made the journey here. Uh, this, uh, this evening, we're gonna not just have Ash Wednesday, we're also going to continue our um, series that we've been going through for the last I don't know three months now um, on the Gospel of Luke. And this series is called "The Physician and the Facts." And uh, we're going through the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a physician. He was all very much about finding the truth and documenting it in the most meticulous way possible. And tonight's message is going to be a little more concise than most of the messages in this series but we are sort of recording it as part of the series um, because it's an important part of Luke that we're talking about tonight. And we planned Ash Wednesday to, to intersect with this passage that we're going to talk about in a little bit. It's, uh, it's going to be part 13 of 22, so we're in the home stretch now, baby. So by Easter, we'll be uh, winding down with this uh, series. <clears throat> now, once again, just want to sort of set the table so to speak, because by the end of tonight, if you're willing, we won't, we won't do this without your consent, but if you're willing <laughs> to come forward at the end of the night and receive the sign of the cross on your head or your hand in ashes, which is a, it's just a black uh, sort of ash that we've prepared up here, then that's sort of where this evening culminates. And I just want to own the fact that that is extraordinary and weird, and it also requires an exceptional amount of trust from you, because Pastor Gio and I, we could write anything we want on your your head, and you'd have to walk around with it. So, this is an act of trust. It's one of them, like a trust fall exercise almost. Because um, you never really know what you're going to end up with. And even the ones that are supposed to be crosses don't always end up looking like crosses. It's uh, it, not, all, not all pastors are equally artistic. And somebody sent me this chart a couple years ago that I wanted to share with y'all. Just as a yearly reminder of the, the range of possibilities. And I love the names that they gave these. So you probably can't see it very well in the back, but you've got things like the big one on the top row called the Father's Revenge, which is hilarious. You've got a really, really sort of a hard-to-see one in the middle row, and that's called Load Toner. That's what that's called because the printer's out of ink in that one, right? Um, You got the Harry Potter over here. Uh, I like on the top left, first in line. That's the name of that one because it gets sloppier as you go, uh, and uh, the the ass starts getting everywhere. Uh, they're all they're all really great. The Harry Potter. I promise not to give anybody the Harry Potter because witchcraft. All right, so uh, <laughs> we'll steer steer clear of that of that tonight. Um, now, if you think this is just a joke, I ran into real life evidence today that 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 chart you just saw is a- actually quite accurate. And uh, I happened to see this sweet, sweet old couple at Picnic, which is a lunch spot up Bissonette, where I was having lunch and hurriedly finishing my sermon today <laughs> and because I'm a procrastinator. And, uh, and this sweet old couple came in with uh, crosses on their foreheads, and, and I knew they had just been to a Ash Wednesday uh, service. And if you think that chart I just showed you is unrealistic, allow me to present to you my new friend, Buzz, (laughs) who is sporting the father's revenge, (laughs) and his dear wife, Margie. (laughs) This one hasn't been named yet, but it is a reminder (laughs) that clergy are not perfect and that you need to lift your hair off your forehead when you come forward, otherwise it's going to be real messy, all right? So, poor Margie. She was real, real disappointed with her cross this year, <laughs> but she was a good sport, letting me take a picture of it. <laughs> Anyhow, oh, man. Um, so, the, the real question is, uh, is why ashes, and what do, what do the ashes represent, right? So ashes and dust are somewhat synonymous in the Bible, and if you really look at Scripture, it's shocking how often ashes and dust come up in Scripture. Like, the whole book is kind of a story about ashes and dust in a weird way. Like, it starts very early, as early as the first and second chapters of Genesis, when God is making everything. Genesis 2, verse 7 says that the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So what did God make us out of? Dust. Now, he made us out of dust, but he also said we're very good when he made us, right? So we are what? Very good dust, that's right. We're good dust, all right? So, we're not just dust, we're good dust. And it's pretty shocking to me that that's how the Bible has described humans in our origins for thousands of years. And just now, in the last few decades, science has begun to catch up with the Bible as they've been able to dissect what exactly it is human beings are made of. Guess what they found? We're made of dust, (laughs) and not just any dust, we're made of dust from the stars. 97% of us and our makeup is shared exactly in common with the stuff that makes up the stars, which is pretty shocking. It's almost like we're not just regular old dust, we're what? Stardust, pretty cool dust, very good dust. It's almost like the Bible's been right for a long, long time. And we're just now catching up to it in our understanding. Now, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't stay, the story doesn't stay very good very long. It only takes humans a, a few chapters, really, to screw everything up and uh, to make something very good into something very bad. And by Genesis 3, this is what God is saying to Adam after he and his wife Eve committed their first sins. 3:19 is uh, is from Genesis, "By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return." That's a grave reminder. A reminder of what? Our mortality, our frailty, the finite nature, the fleeting nature of our lives. I mean, it's a little bit dark and grim, right? A lot of churches will say that as they write the cross on your forehead. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. We've chosen to say something a little nicer than that tonight, just so you're not totally bummed out when you leave. We'll say, repent and believe the gospel. But many Christians the world over repeat this refrain when they receive the cross. I am dust. To dust I shall return. It sounds hateful and rigid and harsh, but it's really not. It's just reality. And the fact that we are dust and to dust we shall return is a reminder that we are really nothing in the grand scheme of things, and our only way to really be anything at all is to be reconciled to the one who made us out of dust and called us very good. That's the only way, really, is to understand that our eternal destiny, if we are to have one, is entirely wrapped up in our reconciliation with this God. God. Who made us from dust. And that reconciliation is what we're here to think on and reflect on and celebrate, because it only is available to us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So we have all kinds of examples of dust popping up in Scripture. God's promise at the end of Scripture is to redeem and indeed recreate all this dust to reflect the full glory of his kingdom so God isn't done with dust. Even if you feel like you're just a pile of dust because of your past or what you've done or your shame, you don't need to let that overcome you because God's not done with any of this dust yet. And that's what we come here to remember. Now, let's get to this passage from Luke. It's, uh, it's on point with what we're talking about, but it's, uh, it's a tough read i'm not going to lie it's uh, from luke chapter 9 so if y'all want to turn with me we don't have study guides tonight because i needed to break but <laughs> from those but we are, we are going to read these passages this passage and you can find it in the bibles in the chair backs in front of you if you're just not feeling like thumbing through the bible to find luke that's cool just read on the screen with us all right so luke chapter 9 verse 51 So, what I want you to know is that right before this, the disciples are doing what they often did, which was they are arguing about which of which of the disciples were the best. It's like they were already denomination, denominationing. Right? <laughs> this just occurred to me. I'm, I'm spitballing here, but it's like they were already forming their factions. And you had some Baptists and some Methodists and some non-denoms, and they're all like, we're the best. We baptize babies. We're the best. We refuse to baptize babies. We're the best. We're the best. And Jesus is fed up with it. Every time they talk about who's the best, who's the best, we're the best, he shuts it down. And the same thing happens here, but you'll see that the disciples who were always saying they were the best ones, even so far as to send their mama to Jesus so that she could tell him, her boys were the best ones. They're still trying to prove their point in this passage. You're going to see it in a second. All right, now let's get into it. As Sorry to the slides person. The slides person in the back is going, what are you doing? All right. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now that verse right there, verse 51, the turning point in the gospel of Luke, that's like it's game time in Luke. From this point on, It's fast-paced, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to Jerusalem for Jesus to die, and there's just going to be non-stop action. And so this is like the pivot point in the whole story. At this time, Jesus uh, resolutely set out to Jerusalem. And he sent his messengers on ahead, who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Samaritans did not like the idea of Jerusalem being ground zero for God's kingdom. They wanted it to be in Samaria. Okay, so when the disciples, here we go, James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? These are the guys who thought they were the best ones. They were like, we'll do it. We'll totally do it. Be really cool. Watch some Samaritans fry, right? This is extreme, right? It's extreme. Uh, to say the least, but Jesus turned and rebuked them, uh, and, and then he and his disciples went on to another village. So Jesus is like, cool it, boys, that's not our mission. You shouldn't take such delight in sending fire down from heaven <laughs> on a bunch of people, no matter how much you might like to do it. All right, and so then we move to this next, uh, this next p- passage here, which is our focus tonight. Um, you're going to see three different things happen. We'll talk about all three. First, as they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. What's Jesus saying there? Any ideas? I'm not rhetorical. I'm asking. What do y'all hear him saying there? Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, that's him, Jesus. Homelessness. He's destitute, right? He's from a worldly standpoint, he's desperate. He's penniless. He's broke. Right? He is on the run from the authorities. Okay, so that's his reality. Now, that wasn't always his reality. Jesus was not homeless for most of his life. He was, he was actually part of a great family. After the wise men visited, they were probably a very wealthy family. They were not hurting for anything. He had a good job, a good career. He had a home, first in Nazareth, and, and the Bible also says he had a home in Capernaum during, during his adulthood, during his ministry. But at this point, from verse 51 on, he knows he has no place to lay his head. And so what he's saying to this well-meaning believer, who says, I'll follow you anywhere. And I feel sorry for this guy because I want Jesus to be like, cool, man. High five. Let's go. Thank you. You'll follow me anywhere. Wow, that's awesome. That's what I would do if I was a pastor and somebody said, I'll be a part of this church no matter what, no matter where it goes. Pastor Eric, I'll follow the story church anywhere. Yeah, that feeds the ego. I like it. Not Jesus. Jesus is like, are you sure? Be careful what you ask for. I don't want to make a liar out of you when you come and realize that this isn't a a comfortable or easy life. Discipleship or following Jesus is, is not something that's for the faint of heart. And so the insinuation here, although it's not spelled out, the insinuation here is that this isn't what anyone expected Jesus to say. Certainly, it's not what the person who came to Jesus saying, I'll follow you anywhere, expected him to say. And if you really look close at it, you might be able to see what I discovered this week, which is there's a little bit of ego in this guy. Who comes out of nowhere as Jesus is walking down the street and goes, Jesus, you know what? I will follow you anywhere you go. I'm not like them. And I'm not like the Samaritans. I will follow you anywhere. Think about, like, it sounds good on the surface, but when you really look at it, you're like, there's something more going on here that bugged Jesus. That is what provoked Jesus' response. It doesn't get easier from there, y'all. This is the second move in this little passage here. Then Jesus uh, said, uh, I'm sorry, then Jesus said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Hmm. So this is the second guy that comes. And Jesus says, Follow me. The greatest honor you could be given. And this guy says, Lord, let me go bury my father. What's the man asking Jesus? He's asking for time. I heard the waiting. He's asking for maybe to fulfill his duty as a son, which was a big deal for Jewish folks and most folks. His father was either dying or older. Maybe he was already dead, and Jewish sons would bury their fathers like a year after they died, after their bones could fit, and they were decayed and could fit into a bone box, and they were buried. Maybe that's what's going on. But the real answer to the question, what is this man asking Jesus, is nothing. Did he ask him anything? What did he do? He told them. Lord, let me go, bury my father. Lord, I'll be back. Lord, I appreciate the offer to be your disciple. I got a few things I got to take care of. Someone go take care of them. Again, there are shades of just this notion of guys not getting it, people not quite understanding what's happening. When Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and then he's telling guys, come follow me, and they're like, cool, cool, I'd love to. But I'm gonna tie up some loose ends first. You can't call Jesus your Lord and then say, I'm gonna tie loose ends up first and get back to you. He's either your Lord, and when he says, follow me, you follow him, or he's not, right? You see the you see the the conflict here? I'm just saying all this to suggest that maybe when we read this passage, we shouldn't just think, well, Jesus is kind of being a jerk, not letting him bury his father. Like we have to look a little deeper and see this passage for what it really is and and see these people for who they really were at this point in time. Now, the the third move here, this is the hardest one, I think. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So he's like, you can go and you can go and say goodbye to your family, but you're not fit for service in the kingdom of God if you start following me and then turn away. And he uses an agricultural sort of reference to make this point. And everybody knew what this meant. If you were plowing a field and your hand was on the plow and you turned your head, you also turned to the plow. You couldn't correctly plow a field by turning your head. Every farmer would have gotten what he was saying, the idea that there's work to be done, it needs to be done right. Don't get distracted. This is too important. Even more important than telling your family goodbye. We talked about this passage today at our staff chapel. And one of our staff people, I'm not going to tell you who, one of our staff people said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to go say goodbye to my family because I, I'm not going like to end up on some missing ad in the post office or something. (laughs) Like, I want them to know where I've gone, and I understand that sentiment. That's where the first, you know, that's where the first thoughts you're going to have are going to go hearing this passage. But I want you to really think about what this man, this third man, were he a disciple of Jesus, what might he have said differently? What might he have said other than Great. Thank you. I will follow you. But first, let me go back and take care of some business. So, I want you to think about that. I'm going to circle back that to the very end of this, of this message. But I want you to just see here what Jesus is saying about the concept of discipleship. I think less than 10% of the Christians I know our disciples. And I'm not sure what to do with that. There's a conviction that lays heavy on my pastor's heart, right? Because I think we're really good at making believers. Even at a church like this one where we're all about convincing skeptics about the rationale of following Jesus or believing in him at least. So we're we're making believers but the minority, only a slim minority of those who become believers actually become disciples. Because discipleship, which is, by the way, the highest honor you can be bestowed by Jesus, is an invitation to discipleship. And he extends that invitation to every believer. But discipleship is hard. It's not for Sundays only. I've only really recently, in the last couple of years, really gotten into discipleship myself. I've been a professional religious leader. That's not the same thing as discipleship. Just like being a good Christian, it's not the same thing as a disciple, right? Discipleship is 24-7. It is not seasonal. It is not whenever you want to, you know, whenever you don't, it's fine. No, it's all the time because Central to the concept of discipleship is following. The act of physically actually following someone. And you can't follow someone, sort of. Like, just think about logically. There's only one way to follow someone, and that's exclusively. Completely. Now, you can, you can be a fan of a lot of different people at the same time. You can be a fan of a lot of different things and teams at the same time. You can can respect and listen to a lot of different people at the same time. You can like a lot of different people at the same time. You can even love a lot of different people at the same time. But how many people can you follow at a time? Just one. You can physically only follow one person at a time. And so when we talk about discipleship, it really is an all-or-nothing kind of thing. When Jesus says, follow me, it's not, okay, I will when I can. It's follow me completely, exclusively, and eternally. And this will come at a cost. That's the whole point of this passage. It won't be comfortable. That's why we adopt it as one of our core practices at the story, to challenge comfort. Because we might live in the most comfortable nation the world has ever known, and we live in a particularly comfortable part of it. Houston, Texas. Wonderful. But it's far too comfortable for a disciple. And so we have to seek our own discomfort in Jesus' name and for his sake. By giving away more than the average person might, by giving away more than we think we can, more of our time and energy, more of our heart, more of our money. Until it hurts, we give and we give because that's who Jesus is and what he did for us, and that's who he calls us to be. And this concept is something I was trying to communicate in a recent Maybe God podcast feature that we put out on YouTube and, uh, and other platforms. Uh, this thing went crazy on Instagram. I mean, just I mean, tens of thousands of people Uh, Chimed in, um, likes, and comments on this particular clip I'm about to show you. For the first time ever, my beautiful daughter, uh, Joelle, joined me on the podcast, and and she asked me if it's easier, if I thought it was easier to raise kids to be Christians or to raise them to be non Christians. And she caught me off guard, because honestly, I wanted to say it's easier to raise kids to be Christian, because I know it is in some ways. You have built-in community and things like that. But I also know when you raise your kids to be disciples of Jesus Christ, you're raising them to know hardship in his name in ways that no one can see coming. So this is the clip, y'all just check it out. Do you think it's harder to raise kids to be Christian than it is to raise kids who aren't Christian? Ooh, that's a loaded question. I really think there are some Things about raising Christian kids today that are uniquely difficult. In other words, I think raising you non Christian would make your life easier. Hmm. And raising you Christian is sort of condemning you in a way to a life of later, when there are, I think there's gonna be fewer and fewer Christians. Yeah. When you're my age, like dramatically fewer Christians in this culture, it's gonna be harder for you to be a Christian than it would to be a non Christian. It's very difficult to find people, even at my school, like who are Christian or like have the same beliefs as me. I also think that raising a kid to be a Christian, they have a sort of understanding of the world and they're not questioning things as much. I mean, they have their church. So even if people at school aren't like Christian or judge them for their beliefs, like they have a community there. So one of the reasons that this uh, clip took off so much is because people really didn't like my answer, and Christians <laughs> really didn't like my answer. A lot of them were like, this guy's a pastor? Um, of course, it's better to raise your kids to be Christians. She didn't ask me if it's better. She asked me if it's easier, and that's where she tripped me up, as she so often does Because she's 15 years old, and that's her job. But she got me with these 10 questions, that one in particular. Because what I was trying to say is this world has never been really friendly to faithful Christians. It's not supposed to be. And if it is, if it feels a little too comfortable, something's off. Either you're not really following Jesus or you're being deceived by the world, and it's temporary hospitality. And so it's a struggle, and it's a struggle to follow Jesus because it's meant to be a struggle. Why? Man, I I wish I had all those answers. I've only got a couple of answers to that very big question. Why would Jesus call us into struggle? I can only tell you that it's in the struggle that we learn who Jesus is, And we remember that we are dust, utterly dependent on him. Only a disciple is utterly dependent on Jesus. A believer can be dependent on many different things at once. But a disciple is dependent on Jesus. A disciple, an only disciple, can faithfully and honestly pray, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Because if I don't get it from you, I'm not getting it from anyone. That's the difference that being a disciple makes. There's something about the struggle that reminds you that you're fully dependent on God. And to be invited by Jesus into the struggle is the greatest honor. And I think about some of you and the struggle that I've seen you go through or that you're going through now. Think about my friend Diana over there. Wave at us, Diana. Hi, Diana. She's so happy with me right now. <laughs> Diana is a public school teacher, following Jesus into school every day for kids that she has no biological attachment to. She's loving them well, even though. So many forces are flying in the face of her efforts. It's a struggle. And I pray that we surround Diana and others that struggle with the community that Joelle talked about at the end of her her clip earlier, because that's where we find strength is in the body of Christ. Bonhoeffer once wrote, from a prison in Germany days before he was executed by Hitler. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, discipleship is not an offer that man makes to Christ. And when Christ... that <laughs> just rocks me every time. You all hear what he's saying? You hear what's implicit? Discipleship is not an offer man makes to Christ. You're not doing him a favor. It's grace and grace alone when Jesus says, follow me. And when Christ... Calls a man, he bids him come and die with him so that we may live with him. You can store up crowns for yourself on earth, but if you do, that'll be all you ever have. Or you can store up your crowns in heaven with Jesus and have them forever. That's the difference discipleship makes. When I think about those three people that approached Jesus, I hope they followed him to Jerusalem, and I hope they saw with their own eyes what he did on their and our behalf, and I hope they became disciples who began to speak a different language. Because while a believer can say something like, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go, like the first person said, a disciple speaks a different language. Instead of, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, a disciple says, Lord, I trust you to lead me wherever you want to, and I trust you to give me everything I need in order to get there. For the disciple, it's all about Jesus, and you understand fully that Jesus knows your every need. So instead of, let me go bury my father, like the believer says, the disciple says, Lord, you know how heavy my heart is, and you know I have responsibilities with my family. So if it is your will, would you lead me home to bury my father? Let me know when. I'll be ready. And instead of let me go say goodbye to my family, like the third person in this passage, the disciple says, Lord, you are my priority. You are my first thing. If and when you see fit, I would cherish the opportunity to tell my family about you. I trust you to show me when and how I might do that because I want them to know and follow you like I am. It's a different perspective to be a disciple. It's never easy, but it's always worth it. Jesus bids you come and die. Follow him, he says, and follow him to glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for making us the way that you did. Dust, very good dust. And we thank you that even when we became something less than very good, you saw the good in us. You saw something in our fallen, dirty, dusty selves that was still worth dying for, that was still redeemable. And so you came. You came to restore and redeem that which had fallen. And by some miracle of grace, tonight we celebrate the fact that we can once again be very good dust. But it is only by following you to the cross, to the tomb, and to heaven. We thank you for all of your promises, for they will all come to pass, and we put all of our trust in you as we follow you with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.